All right. Good morning, everybody. Hey, I'm Tim, and uh, saying good morning to you guys here and the folks at Roan County. I loved being with you guys uh, last Sunday and, of course, down at Bearden and down the hall in Ampton Blend and, and everybody, wherever you are. I'm glad we're together, even though we're spread out, but we're together to worship God today and to hear from His Word. So that's what we're going to do for a few minutes here. And uh, I want to talk a little, about, a little bit about expectations today. Expe- expectations are kind of a funny thing. You know, it can go one of two ways when you have expectations for something and it doesn't go the way you expected. I went to uh, Yosemite National Park. I've been there a few times out in California. If you've never been there, you should go there. The first time I went, I had some expectations and they weren't anything outrageous. It just was that, you know, like I'm going to see some big cliffs and it's going to be cool and mountains and everything. And we'll probably, we'll go on a hike and see some stuff. We'll drive through the park. We'll see different things. And I was not ready for what I experienced. Have you ever been there? There's this spot called Tunnel View. And it, for us, it was the first thing we saw of Yosemite National Park. And you come out of this tunnel and you can stop and you look out over the valley. And I'll just tell you, again, I expected mountains and trees and everything beautiful. But if Bob Ross in all of his afroed glory, had painted what I saw in front of me, I would have gone, Bob, really impressive, a lot of happy trees and waterfalls and stuff, but that's very unrealistic because there couldn't be a place like that on earth. It was too fantastical for reality. It's like there's just 4,000-foot cliff, 3,000-foot cliff, you know, half dome over here, 1,000-foot waterfall, 1,000-foot waterfall, 1,000-foot waterfall, bears playing in the meadows. I mean, it was like, this is... This can't be real. Like, I had expectations, but it just blew them away completely. I was like, nobody, nobody told me it was going to be like this. It can go the other way, too. Um, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of going back to a childhood movie that, like, you watched it when, you know, when, when you were a nine-year-old, and now you're going to show your kids the movie, and, I, you know, they're going to love it, too. I, or, or, or even worse, to show it to another adult. When I was, when I was a, a 20, maybe 20 years old or something like that, my brother had just gotten married, and I went to visit him and his new wife for the first time, and my brother and I were talking about this movie we had seen when we were kids on Laserdisc in 1982. It was called Tron. And we got to talking about Tron. We hadn't seen it since we were kids. We were like, man, remember how much we loved that movie? It was so good. Oh, and his wife said, I've never seen it before. We were like, you've got to see it. You are going to love this movie. This is a 22, 23-year-old adult woman, okay? She didn't love Tron, okay? I'll just tell you that. (laughs) Expectations were not met, all right? Um, It's just the way it goes sometimes. You know, when you have expectations... they might not be met, and it might be a good thing or it might be a bad thing. Um, that's what we're going to be looking at today. We're in this series called Fluent in Good News. And if you, if you remember or if you haven't been around the last couple weeks, we're going through the book of Mark. But we're honing in on this idea that we want to be people who are fluent. Do you know what f- fluent means? It means you don't have to think about the words of the language. The, the language just comes out of you. Uh, we, want to be, we want to be that way with the good news with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus, and, the, and that the gospel, the good news is more than sometimes we think it is. It's not just passing a test so we can go to heaven someday. Instead, the good news is what Jesus proclaimed in Mark chapter 1, that the kingdom of God is here. It's available. Life with him, life with Jesus in God's kingdom is available to us now, today. And what we need to do is repent, turn around, step into his kingdom, put our faith in him, believe in him, and follow him. So that's, we want that to just come out into every corner of of our lives. That's what we're looking at as we go through the book of Mark. And so we want to understand God's kingdom and, uh, and who Jesus is as we do that. 
And I'll just say, uh, getting ready to teach on good news was tough to do this week. Um, It was a tough week in the Bubar household, uh, in our house. Uh, And I won't get into, into all that, but it's one of those times when you go, okay, can I stand up and say, this is good news, not just for someday, but it's good news for right now. Um, so God and I had to wrestle with that a lot this week. And, and I was able to say, yes, I do really believe this. I do really believe this is good news for today. But that doesn't mean that it's easy. You know, there's a, there's a concept, uh, a, a, a reality about God's kingdom that is sometimes described this way, already but not yet. Have you ever heard that before? That God's kingdom is here. Jesus, Jesus spoke the truth that God's kingdom is here and it's available. It is already here, but in, there's also a sense that it's not yet complete. It's not yet completely here. We're going to look at that today. You'll hear that probably also as we continue in this series. And that's the reality we're living in. So if today, if you come like me and go, okay, God, this is good news and your kingdom is here, but there's still a struggle going on. That's not because you're misunderstanding or because Jesus was wrong about what he said. There is a reality that the kingdom is here and we can step into it, but there's yet more to come. It's still unfolding. We'll see that today. Um, So as we dig into Mark chapter 2 and 3 today, here's what we're going to see. The big idea, um, the reality is is that that the good news challenges our expectations. The good news of, of Jesus, the good news of God's kingdom challenges our expectations. You know, it did that in the time of Jesus, too. In the first century, people had all kinds of expectations about what the kingdom of God, the coming kingdom, what it was going to be like. People had all kinds of expectations about what the Messiah would be like. And they were varied. It wasn't like everybody had one picture, one idea. Just like today, people have a wide uh, variety of theological views and opinions and ideas. It was the same thing then. But there were things like this, expectations along the lines of things like this. One, um, that God's presence would tangibly, visibly inhabit the temple again as it had been in the days of old, like a pillar of, of fire and of smoke, like God is going to be there and we are going to know that he is in the temple. That's where he's going to be. They had some expectations. Many of them had expectations around that. Um, that. That a victorious king from the line of David would be on the throne in Israel. That, that there would be a, a guy from the line of David who would sit on the throne and he would rule over Israel again. And some of them from reading the Old Testament, said, but God is going to be that king. And and I don't know how they put together that God is going to be the king and he's going to be from the uh, throne of David. But they didn't know what was from the line of David. They didn't know what was coming, but that was some of their expectation. Um, That Israel's borders would be reestablished. That they would be a nation again. Not not just a people, but a nation with with land that was their own. Their their borders would be reestablished. And their enemies, um, their human enemies especially their overlords in Rome, would be defeated and thrown out and Israel would stand again. They had all of these expectations and Jesus came and his good news of his kingdom challenged their expectations. Look at, uh, look at Mark chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 18 and we're going to kind of work our way all the way through chapter 3. So just keep, just keep your Bible open in front of you because we're going to hop around a little bit. But Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 18, it says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees 
fast, but your disciples do not fast. So they're talking to Jesus. They're like, why aren't your disciples fasting? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine skins new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Okay, let's pause there. Jesus is answering this question about fasting, but he's really, it's probably in a bigger context. He very well may be sitting in, uh, at, at the table at Levi's house. That's the scene that came right before this. He may still be sitting at Levi, the tax collector, sitting at the table there, eating with his disciples, and people are saying, look at Jesus. Why does he do this? Why does he, fast? Why does he eat with, um, with tax collectors, with sinners? And Jesus says, look, I didn't, it's, it's not the sick who need a doctor. It's not the well who need a doctor. It's the sick who need a doctor. So I came to call sinners, not the righteous. That's what I came for. And and then they ask him, well, okay, so look, these other guys, the Pharisees, John, they they fast. Why why don't your disciples fast? And and there were lots of reasons why John's disciples might be fasting, why the Pharisees might be, and their disciples might be fasting. Lots of reasons people would fast in this time um, for, uh, for mourning. Uh, they, they might be fasting um, to, uh, to, to set themselves apart for a particular time, to plead with God about something. That might be another reason. Um, for repentance, that might be a reason for fasting. But whatever it was, that was practice for some of these sort of visible disciples, but not for Jesus's. And Jesus's answer as to why they're not fasting, he gives three illustrations, one about uh, a wedding feast one about sowing, and one about winemaking. Uh, but all three of them point to this idea, that in God's kingdom, something new and beautiful is unfolding. That, like, he just paints a picture. He doesn't, you know, we just read it. He doesn't, he doesn't describe exactly what his kingdom is like. He doesn't explain exactly what's going on. He gives a very cryptic answer, but it's not entirely mysterious. It's just meant to paint a picture of something. The two things that come through here are really that they're new and, they're, and it's beautiful, but also that it's unfolding. You'll see, we'll look at how that comes through here. But the first picture he gives is of a wedding feast. That's probably the easiest of the three for us to grasp, okay? Of a wedding feast. Wedding feast then, you've maybe heard this before, wasn't like it is now. It's not a two-hour reception after the ceremony. It's a week-long celebration, a huge feast, a festival for the town, you know, for everybody to come and celebrate for a week. And so what Jesus is saying, look, why aren't we fasting? Well, you know what it's like when you're with the groom and you're at the wedding feast. You can't fast. Like if you want to mourn and fast, you're going to have to save that for later because right now it's time to celebrate. And Jesus says that's what's going on with his kingdom. That's what's happening. It's It's something beautiful. It's something full of joy. It's something worth celebrating. Jesus says this is something new and fresh that's happening. You can't fast. They wouldn't have understood what exactly does he mean, but they would have gotten the idea, okay, this is something big, and this is something good and something joyous. That's what, that's, that's what that picture should do for us as well. Um, then he talks about, about sewing and about winemaking. Those are probably a little less familiar to us. Nobody sews patches on their jeans anymore, by the way. When I was a kid, 
You got a hole in your jeans? You sew a patch on there. Now, we just throw them away or take them to Carm. I don't know. Or you just wear them with holes in them. That's okay to do now. But you used to sew a patch on them. And I never did it. My mom did it. Uh, I never sewed a patch on. But you understand the, the example he gives here. He's like, okay, so if you, if you have a piece of, okay, you got your, your, you know, back in the day, you got your Levi's. They got a hole in them. They've shrunk, right? And then if you take a new piece of cloth, you go to Joanne's Fabrics, cut it out, sew it on there, whatever you do. Well, it hasn't shrunk yet. When it sh- you put it on there just right, well, when it shrinks, it's going to pull away from it. So it's got, you got to shrink it first. It's, this is his point. It's not about sewing. What Jesus is saying is there's something new going on, and you can't just take it and slap it onto the old. Same with the winemaking thing. If you, if you put wine into a, into a wineskin, as it ferments, it's going to expand, and it's going to stretch the wineskin. Then if you take that, drink it, empty it out. Okay, now you put new wine into there again. It's already stretched as far as it can stretch. So if you fill it up with new wine as that ferments and expands, it's going to stretch it, and it's going to burst. Both of these pictures are about this idea that you can't just take this new thing that's happening and put it into the old. It's, it doesn't work that way. He's not saying what's come before the Old Testament, but the way God revealed to himself. He's not, saying that that's, he's not saying that's no longer relevant. That should be obvious that we don't believe that. We just got done um, going through the book of of Exodus, and we're going to be back in it. Um, so that's not what he's saying, but it's, he is saying that something new and beautiful is happening. He's saying you can't just slap it, the new onto the old. Jesus isn't just reforming the old system and going, oh, if we just tweak some things, then humanity will get their relationship with God correct. If I can just teach them a little bit better, tweak some things. No, instead, he's not just reforming the old system, he's completing it. He's not just adding to it, he's fulfilling it. He's, he's going beyond what was ever imagined before, exceeding all expectations. And so he gives this picture of something new and beautiful that's unfolding. And you see it not just in that story, but you see it in what happens with him. If you go a little further um, into chapter 3, there's all these crowds that are coming to Jesus. It's a picture of something exciting happening. All these crowds are coming from all over. It lists these geographic names that might be places that we don't recognize unless you've been to Israel um, or unless you look at the map in the back of your Bible. You can do that too. But if you go there, you'll see like they, it names um, Galilee. Sure, that's where Jesus is. Jerusalem, that's the big city down south. Um, Judea, that's the whole region around there. And then even beyond that, all the way to the farthest end of the, of the nation of Israel, all the way down south. They, they're coming from, and way up north by, by, the, by, the sea of, by the Mediterranean Sea, Tyre and Sidon, and east on the other side of the Jordan River. He's saying people are coming from all over the region. So people are coming by foot, traveling day after day after day to come and see what Jesus is doing. And look at chapter 3, verse 9, what happens when they get there. You can imagine people coming from all over. They come with high expectations. It says, uh, and he told his disciples, in verse 9, he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. So just have that picture in your mind. This is what's going on. It's like Beatlemania craze. You know, like, really, this isn't hyperbole, I don't think. Jesus was really saying, we better get in the boat, 
I better teach from the boat, not from the shore. Because if I'm standing on the shore while I'm teaching, they will crush, like a soccer stadium in the 80s in, in England, you know? Like people trampling each other to get to where they want to go. It, it could have been deadly. There's mayhem about this. It tells you that there's, there's, there's something new and beautiful going on, and people are coming from the other side of the country. When they get there, they're not disappointed. They just want to get closer to him. There's something amazing that's unfolding around them. It's not just new and beautiful. It's, 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 it's unfolding. It's, it, there's more and more coming. In that first passage we read, uh, chapter 2, verse 20, it says, Jesus said to them, okay, I'm like the, it's, it's like the bridegroom, and you're feasting with him. But, he says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. That's where the, like, Jesus intentionally breaks down the metaphor. It's not like when you went to a, a, um, a wedding celebration in the first century that you had the party and then the bride and groom were taken away from you and you couldn't see them anymore. No, they, they lived in town with you, you know? Like when the celebration was over, everybody just went back to work and when you keep doing your thing, they're still there. He breaks the metaphor intentionally to show them that, okay, something new and beautiful is coming, but there's more to come. It's still unfolding. Yeah, the kingdom of God is celebration, and it's joy, and it's healing, and it's power, but it's also sacrifice. Jesus is pointing to this other, there's, there's also this reality that the kingdom of God comes through love shown in sacrifice. Jesus is saying the day is going to come when I'm going to be taken away, and people will fast then. They will long for my presence. It's this idea of the already, the not yet, that the kingdom is something beautiful and new, but it's still unfolding, and there's more to come. There's more that we'll wait for. We're going to see it happen. Not just that, look at, look at chapter 3, uh, verse 13. After all the crowds come, Jesus has all these crowds around. It says, and he went up on the mountain and called to him. So out of those, that multitude, he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So it's unfolding. Now, Jesus is taking it even further. He's like, I'm the bridegroom. There's a celebration going on, but that's not all. There's more, okay? So now he says, wait, I'm not just going to do the work. You're gonna do, there's going to be people who are going to join me in it, just like was always the intention of God, that he would reign and work, not just in his people, but through his people, so he calls people to him, so that, did you see what it says? So that they might be with him, that he might send them out. Apostles just means sent ones. So the reason is that they're with him, and then he'll send them out to show and tell the good news of Jesus, to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. You see the picture that's coming together, um, how God's kingdom might challenge their expectations. Wait, this isn't just a king who came to sit on a throne and rule over a nation. No, there's something way bigger, something better, something more beautiful, something new and unfolding that's happening. Celebration and joy, but also sacrifice, calling people to him, sending people out. It, it, it went beyond their expectations. It, should go, it, it does go beyond our expectations, too. If you, if you think about how this plays out in our world, you know, we've got a team going to Mexico City this fall. There's a meeting about it. Um, it's happening today here at the Harrison Lane campus at 1215. If you're at Roan County or Bearden, you jump in the car after church. Right, you know, you can, you, could, you can make it for that. Um, at 1215 today, there's, 
there's this meeting going on about, about this trip. What we're doing is we're sending a team down to our missions partners in Mexico City. We've sent teams down there before. There's this ministry called El Pozo de Vida, which means the well of life. And it's a ministry that's primarily focused on um, girls who have been uh, trafficked for sex, sold. And, uh, and so they're, they're there, um, and it's this beautiful ministry. It's, I mean, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's holistic, and it's healthy. It's not just, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, ministering to these girls where they are. It's helping them find physical freedom. It's helping them find spiritual freedom. It's discipling them. It's helping them grow as a person and have a life beyond the life that they've been trapped in. It's a beautiful thing. But it goes beyond your expectations because it is not just a ministry to those girls. It's also a ministry to the people who are trafficking them. It's a ministry to show God's love to those people, to show God's love to the customers, the people who are buying these girls. And you go, that shatters my expectations because it's fine to sit in here and talk about God's love. But then you face a reality like that and you go, hold on. Does God really love everyone? Is his kingdom available to everyone, even to those people? Is Jesus really opening his arms to them? Shouldn't he have a higher standard than that? But no, the kingdom of God is open to all. And that's what that ministry proclaims. And it lives out. And it exists because some people were called by God, called by Jesus. They were with him that he might send them out. And they went out into the city in Mexico City. And, and the, the good news of Jesus is being proclaimed and demonstrated and lives are being changed because of it. You can check it out. You can be part of that team this fall. Um, you see this picture of something new and beautiful that exceeds our expectations. And it's good, but it ruffles some feathers. It's what happens with Jesus. Um, you start to see that he's, he's demonstrating something new. And part of what he's teaching is this. This is sort of the second principle of God's kingdom today is that God's kingdom is about life, not just about ritual. That was trouble for Jesus as he, as he demonstrated that, that God's kingdom is about life. It's not just about ritual. So you see this come through in two stories here. Um, at the end of chapter 2, Jesus and his disciples are walking through the grain fields. And his disciples, some of these people who are following him, this is, this is before he's called those 12, so there's, a, there's a, a bunch of disciples following him. They're walking through the grain, the, the grain fields, and they're plucking some, some of the grain, some of the heads of wheat, and they're snacking on it as they go. And it's the Sabbath. It's the day of rest. And the Pharisees go, no, 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 you can't do that. Today's the day of rest. The law says you rest today. You're plucking those heads of grain. That's called harvesting. Harvesting is work. You're breaking the law. You can't do that. And Jesus goes on and tells them this story, reminds them of this story from the Old Testament. Um, you'll see what he says. We don't have time to read it now. You'll, you'll see what he says when you do the live it out this week. You'll, you'll see this story that he points to. But, what it, but his, his point is, what he says um, at the end of that is he says to them, the Sabbath, this day of rest, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. See what he's saying? It's, it's about life. It's not about ritual. The Sabbath, a day of rest, is for people to enjoy and to get rest. It's not meant to be this law, this rule that, you know, if you break it, you're in big trouble with God. No, it's meant to be about life. That's what the kingdom is about. He demonstrates that again right after that, the beginning of, of chapter 3. Look at that, what happens there. Verse, chapter 3, verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue. He's probably back in Capernaum. 
and he enters the synagogue again. And a man was there with a withered hand. Do you remember last time he was in this synagogue? Uh, we looked at this in chapter one. Uh, yeah, in chapter one. Um, he was in the synagogue, and there was a man with an unclean spirit. On the Sabbath, Jesus got right to work. He cast him out. So they're watching what he's going to do this time. He enters the synagogue. A man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. Healing is work, apparently. Um, so they're watching him so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And Jesus is like, I'm going to heal this guy, but I'm not going to do it in some back corner of the, of the synagogue. If they're going to watch me, I'm going to let him see. So he calls the guy right into the center. He says, come here. Um, and he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? What should you do on the Sabbath? But they were silent. They had no answer for him. They were silent and they looked around and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. They want to kill Jesus for that. He's showing, because he's showing them, he's, he's, he's challenging their expectations, showing them that God's kingdom is about life, not about ritual. They thought they had it all figured out. When they realized they didn't have it all figured out, they were not happy about it. The Pharisees, you know, the Pharisees sought to live this, this pure life, set apart, holy. God had given laws of ritual purity for the temple, for those who were serving in the temple, for you when you go to the temple. And the Pharisees took all that and they said, we're going to live that way in our everyday life. It's not just for the temple. We're going to live that pure, that set apart in every moment of our lives. And that maybe came from a good place. You know, rituals can be a good thing. God gave rituals for the people of Israel to follow, but the why behind them matters. So when the Pharisees did that, they became so focused on the rules about purity, about being set apart, that they missed that the whole point of all those purity laws was to show the presence of God and what it's like to live in his presence. They were so focused on the rules that they missed the presence of God. And that's exactly what happens when they encounter Jesus. We don't want to be like that. The kingdom of God is about life, not about ritual. That's how we want to live. So it made me go, what are our, what are our rituals? What are our religious rituals that we practice that we might miss the point of? Like, what are our, I think our rituals are things like going to church on Saturday night, Sunday morning. That's, that's a ritual we have. Um, being part of a group, going to a small group, um, uh, a quiet time, devotions, doing the live it out, setting it that, that part of time. Maybe, maybe it's serve Saturday or all in prayer night. We have these things that we do and we want to remember that they are about life. I, I, I love to say what happens in this room only matters if it, if it also matters outside of this room. You know, It's not just about what happens here. It's about what happens here, changing what's happening then in the rest of our everyday lives so that when we come into a, a, a worship service, we don't just go, okay, God, um, I'm, I'm doing what, you, what I'm supposed to do, so you do what you're supposed to do for me, you know? It's not, like a, it's not like some exchange with God, but it's also not just, okay, God, show me what you can do. It might also be, God, exceed my expectations. 
God, surprise me with what you're going to do. Don't, to, to, to expect the unexpected when we come before God in worship to see what he's going to do in our lives. Or he may actually be calling you to use you in somebody else's life when you think you're coming here for you and God, but he's actually got you here for somebody else and God. Maybe he's calling you into a conversation with somebody to give a warm welcome to somebody, to pray for somebody who needs prayer. You go, I'm not on staff of the church. That's not my job. Yeah, we're the church. And we, God's calling us to do something. He's sending us to do something. And it can even be begin here while we're together, or it might be at your small group, and you come together, and you go, okay, I hope I get something out of, the, out of the time together tonight. Well, maybe God has sent you there to give something out of that time together, or you go on a serve Saturday, and you think one thing's going to happen, and God is doing something else. You go, God, we're not getting anything done. What are we doing? What are we here for? Well, God's here for, God, God's kingdom is about life. It's not just about ritual, so look for the life, for the beautiful, the new that's unfolding in each of those things that we do. We study scripture not to check off a a box and say, okay, God, I did my quiet time today, but instead to say, God, I want to know you. Reveal yourself to me. Surprise me with the good news I see played, played out in your word, God. We study scripture to know the God who is behind it. So we come not, uh, not for ritual, but for the life that Jesus is calling us to. So, you, you know, our expectations are challenged by the good news. We see this, this new and beautiful thing unfolding, and, and we see that, that it's about life, not just about ritual. The third and last um, uh, principle, reality we see in God's kingdom is that unmet expectations lead to opposition. Good news, no matter how good it is, if it's not what people expected, can still be opposed to it, you know? That's... That's what happens here. Unmet expectations lead to opposition. Now, now that's just a reality in general in life that we know, whether it's a, it's a movie that disappoints you. Unmet expectations lead to opposition. You know, there are places in the world that are like hot spots for this. You can go out. There are spots where you can go. You, you just stay for a few minutes, and you are guaranteed to see this principle in action. It's an amazing thing. Those places are called airline ticket counters. <laughs> I guarantee you, you don't have to stay long. You will see that unmet expectations lead to opposition. You know, it's just like it's guaranteed. Somebody's not going to be happy and there will be opposition. It's a reality. Jesus encountered it. Um, we'll look at the, at the last part, the rest of, uh, of chapter 3 um, as we finish this out. Look at chapter 3, verse, start in verse 20. It says, Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that, he, so that they could not even eat. This is after he's gone up on the mountain. He goes home. Um, they, they can't even eat. There's so many people there. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. We find out at the end of the chapter, this is Jesus' mom, this is Mary, and his brothers. And probably they're up, up in Nazareth, away from the Sea of Galilee. Jesus, when it says he went home, means back to Capernaum. So he's there by the shore, um, probably at Peter's house. And, and Jesus' family is way out in Nazareth, but they hear what's going on. I mean, everybody's flocking to Jesus. And they're like, no, 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 no. We gotta, we gotta set this kid straight. You know, like, 
Your kids are always your kids, your brothers, your siblings. They're, always, they're never real grown-ups to you. If you're a kid, you know, just, I'm just warning you, um, when you grow up, your brothers and sisters are still going to think you're a kid, and you're going to feel like you're a kid probably when you're around them. That's what's going on with Jesus. They're like, we've got to go stop this kid. Somebody's going to shut him down. He's got no business running around acting like he's the Messiah. He's the kid we grew up with, and they don't understand what's going on. Their expectations are met. And so Jesus' very own mother, Mary, angels appeared to her, you know, and his, and his brothers. One of them's going to go on to write the, the letter we call James, okay? Those people are like, Jesus, you got to stop. Like, they probably had good intentions, but because they, they, because they had the wrong expectations, because their expectations were challenged, they were opposed to what Jesus was doing. It goes on in verse 22. And the scribes who came from Jerusalem, these are the bigwigs from the big city, they were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. You notice they're not arguing about his power. They can't deny that. Jesus is clearly doing this. He clearly has authority over demons, but they say he must be getting his authority from a more powerful demon. That's what it is. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, Jesus says, come here, come here, come here, come here. How can Satan cast out Satan? How does that work? He says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he can't stand, but is coming to an end. He says, that doesn't make any sense. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then he may plunder his house. Let's pause there for a second. Do you remember what John the Baptist said? He's standing in the Jordan River. He's baptizing people. He says he preached. And what he said was, after me comes he who is, the ESV says, mightier than I. You know what mightier means? Stronger. He says, there's coming somebody after me who's stronger than me. He's got more power than I do. And that's exactly what they're seeing play out as he casts out demons. And Jesus says, you know how this works. If somebody's got a house and he's a strong man, he's not going to let anybody into his house. Well, if somebody starts just picking people up and chucking them out of the house and doing whatever they want there, they must be stronger than the strong guy who runs the house. Jesus says, that's who I am. I went into the wilderness for 40 days. I faced the devil. I faced Satan. I'm stronger than he is. So when I run into his people, his demons... There's no fight. They cower in fear. They run away. They're terrified of the power of the Almighty God come in flesh, walking around in their presence. Jesus doesn't have to spell all that out. He just says, do the math, everybody. If I'm throwing out the demons, it's because I can clear the house out. Now, it's not all over yet. Jesus is going to finish the battle on the cross. And it's not all going to be over and done and sorted out until he comes again. But the battle is won. He has the power. He has the authority. And they can see it right in front of them. And when they see it, they don't understand it. And so they are opposed. And they're plotting to kill Jesus. That's what happens. Now, let me finish this, 
what he says here, because there's one more important thing. He says, truly I say to you, all sins, this is in verse 22 now, uh, sorry, uh, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now let me just address this um, briefly regarding this idea of the unforgivable sin because a lot of stress and probably terror has been caused for a lot of Christians who've read this and said, well, does this mean, is this about me? Have I committed some sin that is unforgivable? What is he talking about here? Well, just a couple things. One, he's condemning these men who have seen what Jesus is doing. They've seen what he's doing and attributed his power not to the Holy Spirit, but to Satan. So he seems to be saying that if you see what God is doing in the world and you see his hand clearly at work and you deny that it's good, but instead you say it's evil and you say, that's not God at work, that's Satan at work. If you get it that upside down, if you get it that backwards, well, there's just no coming back from that. It seems that that's what Jesus is saying. But even in that, it doesn't seem like Jesus is making a rule. Like he's like, okay, here's a rule. Nobody cross this line. If you cross this line, there's no forgiveness for you. That's, you know what Jesus is like, and he's not like that. In fact, I mean, look, Jesus came, his kingdom is about life. It's not about ritual. So I don't think he's making a new rule, a new line that you better not cross or you can never be forgiven. Because look, at, even at the Apostle Paul, you remember where he came from? He was a Pharisee. He believed what these guys did. He looked at what Jesus did, what his disciples were doing, and he said, that's evil. They must be stopped. Put them to death. That's what he did. And was the story over for Paul? No, because Jesus wasn't done with him. Jesus, Jesus didn't say, no, 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 you've gone too far, Paul. I'm not forgiving you. Instead, he went after him. He pursued him. He didn't say, well, let's see if you can come to me. No, he went and he appeared to him and he called Paul to a new life. He changed his life. He used him for his glory, for his kingdom. So listen, if you're just by worrying, just by wondering, God, have I committed an unforgivable sin? I don't want to do that. Just by the very nature that you're asking that question, it says you have not gone that far away. Instead, you're trying to find your way back to him. And if you are trying to find your way back to Jesus, he will find you. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. He is coming for you. So reach out to him. Step into his kingdom. That's what Jesus is here for. So... Don't get hung up on an unforgivable sin. Instead, see that Jesus' goodness goes beyond what we expect. And when it does, there can be opposition. So two things about this idea of opposition. One is, if you're following Jesus in his kingdom, don't be surprised when you face opposition. When it's, there might be things that Jesus calls you to that are hard for the people around you to understand, hard for them to take. Okay, don't be surprised by that. But the other thing, and maybe, maybe a more important thing for us, is just for us to be warned, for, for all of us to be warned that we don't oppose God's kingdom just because it doesn't meet our expectations. If it happened, really, I just was reading this, I'm like, if that happened to Mary who had had the angel Gabriel appear to her, if that happened to her, I better be careful. I should question my expectations. It doesn't mean that like, oh, um, I'm going to suddenly realize, well, God wants me to have just what I've always wanted. It's not about going, oh, okay, well, I can kind of make God into whatever I want him to be because 
It's outside my expectations. No, that's what the Pharisees were trying to do, and, and they didn't get to do that. We don't get to do that. Instead, we look at how God has revealed himself, and we look at what he's doing in the world, and we go, okay, God, I'm not going to limit you. I'm not going to limit what you can do. Instead, we should be looking, looking to be surprised. We should expect the unexpected with God. The good news challenges our expectations. We should assume that's going to happen. We should be regularly shaking our heads in amazement at, at what God has done and how good he does. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where like you're, you're praying for something and then God does it and you're like, what? Or, or you don't have that much faith and you don't even stop to pray for it. You just wish things were different and you see clearly God did this thing and he did this amazing thing. I've had this experience and I just go, what? God, I did not expect that. I don't know why I didn't expect it because you always do stuff like that, but I did not see it coming. Have you had that experience? If we live with our eyes open to the newness, the beauty, the unfolding of God's kingdom, that should be happening to us all the time. Like just going, I got it. You did it again? How do you keep doing this? That's the kind of God who we follow. That's the kind of kingdom that he has called us to live in. And so this week, um, we're just asking you, like as you, as you do the live it out each day this week, that you would do that to engage with God each day and that you would just let it be um, what I would call a good news reality check. Like just let it be a good news, like as you... As you work through just a few questions each day, would it just be a reminder that, okay, is this really good news? How is this good news for me today? To let it be a reality check of what is true and what is good about the kingdom of God. It's already here. It's also not yet. There's more to come. So God, how do I live in that now? But let it be a reality of check of what's good. There's also a prayer in there each day. And, uh, and I'm just challenging us. Maybe put a reminder in your phone to pray this little one-sentence prayer three times a day this week. Just, it, it's a ritual. It, it, it's a ritual, but it's about life. It's about what God might do with that. To, to put in your phone morning, um, midday, evening, to pray this little prayer. And I just wanted to take a moment to pray this one-sentence prayer together right now and just to see even now if God would speak something into your heart. Just this, Jesus, open my eyes to the beauty and goodness of your kingdom today. So would you just take a moment? and bow your head, pray that prayer, and just pause for a moment and see if Jesus wants to show you something even now. Jesus, open my eyes to the beauty and goodness of your kingdom today. God, even now, uh, in this moment, we ask that by your Spirit you would bring things to our minds that would lift our hearts, lift our souls. God, remind us of your goodness. Remind us of what's possible in you. And we do ask, God, that you would keep our eyes open to what you're doing in your kingdom, through us, with us, in us, for your glory. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to respond to God now by worshiping him. So would you stand as we sing together?